Good evening. My name is Diana, and the Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 49, verses 8 through 10. Judah, you are the one your brothers will honor. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you rise up. He lies down and crouches like a lion. Like a lioness, who dares disturb him? The scepter won't depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from among his banners. Gifts will be brought to him. People will obey him. The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is found in Revelation 5, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one seated on the throne. It had writing on the front and the back, and it was sealed with seven seals. I saw a powerful angel who proclaimed in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or look inside it. So I began to weep and weep, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look inside it. The word of the Lord. And if you're able, please stand for the gospel reading, which is found in John 19, verses 17 through 19. Carrying his cross by himself, he went out to a place called Skull Place in Aramaic, Golgotha. That's where they crucified him and two others with him, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a public notice written and posted on the cross. It read, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. The Gospel of the Lord. Thank you, Diana. Please remain standing with me as we pray. Gracious Father, we come before you tonight. We acknowledge that you are the worthy one, that you and you alone are worthy. And we come gathered here as your people in your name by your spirit, and we ask that you would speak to us and that you would give us ears to hear and minds to understand and that you would ignite our hearts with holy love for you for one another, and for the people that you bring across our path during the week. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you. Those of you who are here in the room and those of you who are worshiping online, if you're worshiping online, would you take a moment and go over to the comment section on Facebook or YouTube, say hi to Jim and Martha Cole, let them know that you're worshiping with us tonight. Those of you that are in the room, you can just you know, wave at someone who's uh, sitting next to you. A couple of really quick announcements before we dive into the text tonight. First, uh, we're having some differences with the screen. So when, the, uh, when Pastor Ken came up, you didn't see his name, but this is Pastor Ken Harmon who came up to do our offering today. Pastor Ken joined our team during COVID in the last uh, like 
30 days ago, 40 days ago, something like that. So if you see Pastor Ken and Tracy and Grace, please make sure you say hi to them. Tonight after the service is our meal group and ministry launch. So immediately afterwards out in the, lot, in the parking lot over here, there will be tables for you to find out about places that you can connect and serve this fall, as well as food trucks. So a great way to sponsor some local businesses. You can get dinner at two and Josh and John's ice cream at the other one, but don't leave the service quite yet for that. Okay, they'll, they'll be there afterwards. Just wait on through. Uh, last announcement for today. Oh no, two more. Uh, Alpha is getting ready to launch on September 29th. So if you're interested, you know someone that is questioning faith, thinking about faith, maybe kind of asking questions about who Jesus is. There'll be more uh, information coming soon, but Alpha is going to launch on September 29th. And then lastly, this week, Pastor Glenn has his follow-up appointment with his doctor. We're hoping that we'll get the green light for Pastor Glenn to be back preaching next week uh, on Sunday. To ease back in, we're going to try to team teach. So we're going to like see how that goes. I don't know how we're going to do it, like tag back and forth, or we'll figure out something uh, just to ease Glenn back in. But hopefully we'll get that good report. Please keep praying for him. All right. It snowed this week. <laughs> September. <laughs> And there's snow. It's gone now, but it snowed for at least a moment in there. And one of my favorite sort of moments of living in Colorado is that moment when after the snow is done and after the clouds part and the sun comes back out and the blue sky appears and you see that contrast of the white snow on the peak versus that bright blue background. And I think to myself, why would anyone want to live anywhere? But here, it's breathtaking to see the mountain covered with snow and the sky behind it. And there's always a moment kind of in the middle of it where I think about the version of mountains where I grew up. I grew up in a small farming community in Iowa. And so the closest thing that we had to a mountain of snow was after the snow and the snow plows came through and piled all of the snow up. That was our snow mountain. But the great thing about that was it was the perfect setting for playing that childhood game, King on the Mountain or King on the Hill where I don't know why we encourage children to play this because it always ends in blood and in tears. Uh, if you've never played the game before, the whole concept of it is, is that you do everything you can to fight to the top of the mountain, to fight to the top of the hill. And that means pushing, pulling, kicking, grabbing other people, pulling, it doesn't matter. The goal is to get to the top. But then when you get to the top, you're not done yet. Because now you have to stay at the top, which is like, you know, a boot to the face, uh, anything to kind of keep your position. And the goal, I mean, at the end, it's really the last kid standing wins. You know, the recess whistle blows and who's ever on the top at the end wins. And the real sad part about this game for all the fun that it was as we were kids is it sort of gives us a picture into the human condition that this is not just a childhood game, but it's really a metaphor for so much of our lives. That we find that we are driven by fear or by greed or by pride to try to be on top, 
to be in charge. And then when we get there, to be in control. We tend as people to use our power, our strength, our intellect, our savviness, whatever sort of resources we have at our disposable, our disposal, we use our power for promotion and preservation. This is what we're taught to do from an early age, to use power to benefit ourselves or to use power to benefit our family or our tribe or our party or our race or our nation, that this is what we do with power. Power is to be used for promotion and preservation and protection for us and those that are like us. We see this in the earliest accounts of humanity. If we think about Adam and Eve reaching and trying to grasp and ascend in the garden all the way to the Tower of Babel, let's build ourselves a tower for our name. We see this in the rise and fall of empires. We need to take them out so then we can control this resource, this land, this trade route. We see it in modern superpowers. We see it in corporations. We see it in school boards, we see it play out in our families and even in our churches. That we use power to get what we want, to get what's ours, to get what's mine, and then to keep it. We even go so far as to fight one another in the supermarket for three months worth of toilet paper. I mean, just because a month is not quite enough, we need to have three months supply just in case. And we'll go to those sort of links. Tonight, we're continuing this series in the book of Revelation. We're going to be looking in Revelation chapter 5, and Revelation actually reveals to us how God uses power. It reveals to us God, who is the Almighty One, God who is all-powerful, God who is majestic, God that created all things and sustains all things. It reveals to us how this God actually uses the immense power that he has. Last week in chapter four, we caught John getting this vision and being brought into this heavenly throne room where he sees God seated on the throne and sees a glassy sea before him. We're transported in this place where God is and where everything is as it should be, where everything is as God wants it to be, where everything is as we know someday it will be. But there's a problem. John's still imprisoned. The churches that John loves and John serves, they're still being oppressed. Rome still appears to be running the world with their program of conquering by violence, controlling through exploitation, and by pushing people down in fear. There's a problem. We've still got death. We've still got disease. We still have accidents and miscarriages. We still have addiction. We still have murder. We still, we now have toilet paper, but now we're wondering where our Clorox wipes are coming from. There's still lack. There's still fear. There's still anxiety. There's still, what are we going to do about this? And the question that comes up is, how will God make things on earth as they are in heaven? 
How will this actually happen? How will God's kingdom, this picture that we get in Revelation 4, how will that get from there here? How will God keep his promises to his people? How will he defeat his enemies? How will he rescue all of us? And how will he restore and redeem his creation? In short, how will God win? How is this going to happen? Because that's great, but all of this is happening here. We're then turn into Revelation chapter 5 and we read this. It says, Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one seated on the throne. And it had writing on the front and on the back. And it was sealed with seven seals. We said earlier when we see something in someone's right hand, this is about their power, their plans, their purposes. The scroll contains God's plan. How is it that God is going to do all of these things? The scroll contains the way that God is actually going to fulfill his promises and defeat his enemies and redeem his people and restore his creation. It's in his right hand and it's complete. It's written on front and back. There's nothing that needs to be added to it. It's the entirety of God's plan, but it's sealed with seven seals. In other words, it's perfectly sealed. It's completely sealed. And here it is. And then John sees, he says, I, he's sitting there and he hears a powerful voice who proclaims, an angel who proclaimed a loud voice, who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And it goes on, it says, but no one, no one, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll and look inside. And so what does John do? He begins to weep and weep because no one was found worthy to open the scroll to look inside. No one in heaven, no one on earth, no one under the earth. And so John is brought to despair. He's brought to this moment of total heartache and brokenness. He finds himself here living in the long, dark shadow of Rome. And he wants suffering to end. He wants violence to cease. He himself wants to be set free, but he cannot make it happen. And it appears that nobody else can either. And no one can open it. And if we're honest with ourselves, we've all been in John's spot. We've all felt that kind of despair where we've come to the end of ourselves, where we've exhausted all of our resources, where we're pleading and trying and doing everything that we can to make things different. We just want things to change. And we've done everything that we possibly can, and we can't seem to get up the hill. We can't seem to stay there. Those moments for us, they expose us. We feel weak, powerless, and vulnerable, and afraid. And they expose the very limits of our power and the underlying myth behind human progress. So sometimes we just have this belief that gets stuck in our head that if we just had a little bit more time, if we just had a few more tries, 
If we just had a little bit better technology, if we just had a new administration, if we just had a different business plan, if we just had the right partner, if we just had all of these things, and if we could line it all up perfectly, then, then we could make it happen. Then we could change everything. But eventually we realized that all of these things come up short. That revelation actually reveals the very limits of our power as people. And the truth is, before we can see God's power, we have to come to the end of our own. Before we can really see and understand and appreciate and embrace the very power of God, we actually have to come to the end of our own. We have to realize that we're not able or worthy to open the scroll that we're not able or worthy to enact God's will, to accomplish God's plan, to establish God's kingdom. We have to realize that there's no person, no politician, no party, no movement, no legislation, no new idea, no technological advance, no breakthrough, no culture, no nation state, no anything that can actually complete God's plans and purposes. And those things do not bring about what it is that God has planned. They all come up short. They all prove to be unable and unworthy to open the scroll. They all come up short. This doesn't mean that those things aren't important. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't vote and that we shouldn't lobby and that we shouldn't push for justice and that we shouldn't have movements and that we shouldn't work hard, that we shouldn't keep advancing things. It doesn't mean any of those things are not important. It doesn't mean that there isn't work to be done for us. It doesn't mean we shouldn't strive. And it doesn't mean that we are completely and helplessly stuck. But it does mean, like John, that we're going to, at some point in our lives, have to look elsewhere. That we need to actually look to a different power. That we need to look beyond ourselves. John, as he goes on, this is what happens for him. Then one of the elders said to me, here is John's weeping. He says, don't weep. Don't weep. Don't cry. Look. Look. The lion of Judah, the root of David, he has emerged victorious so that he can open the seal or open the scroll and its seven seals. Look, look, the lion of Judah, the root of David, he has emerged victorious. These titles here, the lion of Judah, the root of David, they're titles from the Old Testament that say in the Messiah, the one who was long promised, the one who Israel was waiting for, the descendant of Judah, the descendant of David, the one who's going to win a great victory for God and reign forever. He has emerged victorious. See, the central claim of the entire book of Revelation is that Jesus is the Messiah and that he has already won. He has conquered. He has emerged victorious. And he and he alone is the one who can carry out, complete the work that God has started. He's the one that can actually make that victory realized on earth as it is in heaven. He's the one who's already won and he's making that victory known in the course of history. 
So then look what happens here. It's something absolutely fascinating. So then John says this, then in between the throne and the four living creatures and the, among the elders, the place that John was told to look, I saw a lamb standing as if it had been slain. I looked and I saw a lamb standing as if it had been slain and had seven horns and seven eyes, which are God's seven spirits, sat out into the whole earth. And he came forward and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one seated on the throne. So the angel had just told John that the lion of Judah has emerged victorious. And John looks to that place and he looks and he expects to see a lion. But instead he sees a lamb, small, young, innocent, seemingly powerless, looking as if it has been killed, slaughtered, and yet having seven horns. Horn is a symbol for power, seven being complete, but is how and somehow all powerful. And having seven eyes, eyes a symbol for knowing, and having seven of them complete knowledge, all powerful and all knowing. And this lamb, the all powerful and all knowing one, has been slaughtered. The one with perfect knowledge and perfect power was crucified. And see, what Revelation wants us to see is that God demonstrates his power through the cross. God's power, if we want to know what it looks like, God's power looks like Jesus. And God's power specifically looks like Jesus crucified, betrayed, arrested, beaten, mocked, stripped, pierced, abandoned, crucified, buried, and then on the third day, raised again. This is what God's power looks like. We want to know how God uses power in the world. We look at the cross and the empty tomb. And we want to know how this immense God uses his power. We look here to the moment that Jesus ascended the hill, that Jesus climbed the mountain, and he did so carrying a cross on his back. We look to the one who conquered by dying, who won by losing. He became king, not by using his power to pull himself up and to push others down, but by laying down his life in order to raise others up. He became king, not by using his power for self-promotion and self-preservation, but in self-giving, self-sacrificial love for other people. He became king, not to benefit himself, but to benefit all of us. It's because he was slain, because he gave himself, because he sacrificed himself, that he is able and worthy to open the scroll. He's able and worthy to carry out God's plans and purposes in the world. Goes on. It says, Jesus took the scroll. All of heaven broke out and started to sing a new song. 
And then they took up a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And by your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. And you made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God so that they might rule on the earth. See, Jesus, through his self-giving, self-sacrificial love, through his death on the cross, he purchased persons from every tribe and tongue and race and nation, black and white and brown and red and blue and rich and poor and male and female and you and me. Each of us, he has purchased us. And then he didn't stop there. He then made us to be a kingdom and priest so that we might rule with him. He took his power and he sacrificed himself. And then he gave power to us and he commissioned us to rule with him. And how are we to rule? The same way that he does. See, the truth is, is that our power as followers of Jesus should look like Jesus crucified. God's power looks like Christ on the cross. Our power should look like Christ on the cross as well. That the power that God has given us, the resources that he's given us, the abilities that he's given us, we're to use them in the same way that Jesus used his. This is what theologians call a cruciform life, a life that has been formed by the cross. The very heart of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is to have the entirety of our lives shaped by the cross. Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. So that means all of our power, our strength, our influence, our intellect, our resources, our time, our talents, whatever that we've been given, everything is meant to be used in self-giving, self-sacrificial love for others. So that means the way that we bring power, that we bring our presence, that we bring whatever we have into our relationships, they should look like Jesus on the cross. Our relationship with our spouses should look like Jesus on the cross. Our relationship with our kids should look like Jesus on the cross. Our relationship with our neighbors should look like Jesus on the cross. Our relationship with strangers should look like Jesus on the cross. Our relationship with people who think differently and look differently and act differently and believe differently than we do should look like Jesus on the cross. Our relationship with people that we might call enemies should look like Jesus on the cross because while we were yet God's enemies, he gave himself for us. So this is why our mission as a church is to make disciples, to be the kind of people who learn together what it means to take up our cross 
in this day, in this time, in this age, in this world, in this country, in this city. We do so by calling people to worship, to connect, and to serve. Why do we call people into worship? It's not so that we can have like big numbers to post somewhere. We don't do that. Why do we encourage people to connect in meal groups and, and find other places and ministries to connect in? Is it so we can just build bigger and bigger things? No. Why do we call people to serve? Is it so that we can just have programs going? No, because we believe that when we worship the one true God, when we gather together, that when we connect with others, that when we actually take our time and our talents and we serve one another, that it's in those places that we actually learn how to live cross-shaped lives. And it's in doing all of those things that somehow the Spirit is at work in us, teaching us and showing us what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is actually how all Christian practices are shaped. They're all meant to be means by which the Holy Spirit transforms us into the image and likeness of Jesus. That's why when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we don't pray that our will be done. We pray, no, let your kingdom come and your will be done. We lay down our power. It's when we talk about simplicity and generosity and tithing. When we talk about those things, it's not simply to make budgets. But when we do that, we realize, oh, this is what it means for my resources for the things that God's given me, it means this is what it looks like for these things to be cross-shaped, to be used in self-giving, self-sacrificial love, the same love displayed by God in Jesus on the cross. It's why our service or times of volunteering in the city, in the church, and in the world, and in our neighborhoods is not simply to pad some sort of resume. <laughs> I don't know who reads those anyway but it's instead to take all of our strength and all of our skills and all of our talent and all of our time and to say, Jesus, would you show me, Holy Spirit, would you help me to know what it means for this to be shaped by the cross, to look like Jesus? Because this is what God's power looks like. It looks like Jesus crucified. And to be followers of Jesus, what does our power look like? It looks like Jesus crucified. And we come even to the table to learn the same thing. So we come to the table tonight. You want to go ahead and grab your communion elements. Those of you at home, they're pretty easy to open. Those of you here, it's going to take the next five minutes as we go through this time. But when we come to the table, we're reminded of what God's power looks like. We remember what Jesus has done. And not only when we come to the table do we do that, but we come confessing acknowledging the times that we have misused or abused the power that God has given us, our failure to love, our failure to serve. And we ask God to forgive us, to cleanse us and teach us not how to get our will done, but how to walk in his name, that he might be the one that's glorified. It's in this place that we receive forgiveness. And it's in this place that we remember the way of Jesus, how Jesus lived his life, and it's in this place we ask the Holy Spirit to teach us to live our lives the same way. So let's join together in this prayer of confession tonight. Words are uh, on the side screens, if you can see them. If not, just...
do the best you can from memory. Here we go. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, while we were yet sinners, while we were the enemies of God, Christ died for us, rescuing us from our slavery to sin and breaking us free from the power of death. And so in the name of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. The peace of the Lord be with you. Would you take a moment right now and stand with me as we acknowledge that the Lord is here. His spirit is with us. And so let's lift up our hearts. We lift them up to the Lord and let's give thanks to the Lord our God for it is right to give him thanks and praise. Would you take a moment and do that right now? We give him thanks and praise that he alone is able and worthy to open the scroll that he has already won through the cross. Someday he will come again and we'll experience the fullness of his victory. And the night in which he was handed over his suffering and death, our Lord Jesus, he took bread. And when he blessed it, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. Hold on to it for just a second. We're gonna receive it together. And after supper, he took the cup of wine And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And he said, drink of this, all of you. This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. So drink of this, all of you. And whatever you do, do this for the remembrance of me. So friends, let's proclaim together the great mystery of our faith, that Christ has died and Christ is risen and Christ will come again. And all around the room, would you open your hands up right now as we pray? This would not only be a time that we remember, but be a place that we encounter, that we're filled with hope for the future. So Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, come. And would you make these, the, the cups, bread that we were about to share, would you make them be for us, the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world, the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. By your Holy Spirit, would you make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Friends, these are the gifts of God given for us, the people of God. Receive them in remembrance that Christ died for you. And feed on, uh, receive them in remembrance that he died for you and feed on him in your hearts, faith and with thanksgiving. The body of Christ given for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. 
Now, having received God's grace and mercy and forgiveness, we're going to take some time to sing. We're going to sing what has become my favorite worship song, a song called Is He Worthy? It's taken right out of Revelation chapter 5. Acknowledging our groaning and our longing for God's kingdom to come and recognizing and celebrating that Jesus alone is the one who is able and worthy to open the scrolls. Let's sing together.